Well, happy 4th of July weekend. It is good to have you here with us, and thank you to the choir. What a beautiful, beautiful song, and I do just want to echo that prayer that my wife mentioned just as she was praying. Just praise God for our nation. Thank God, and we also need to pray for our nation, pray for our leadership, pray for uh, their safety, and pray also that the Lord just continues to lay hold of hearts and change lives and change minds and make this nation what it could be. And so would you join with me even before we get started today and pray for that again. Father, we do one more time lift up this nation to you. And Lord, we just praise you and glorify you. We do thank you. We do not take it as light, as something light or something to just be uh, 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 just be ignored or to, to just pass by. God, thank you for a nation where we can gather together with freedom. There are believers all around this world who do not have that same freedom. And so, Father, I do just thank you for it. I pray for protection for our leadership. I pray for President Donald Trump and his family. God, we just pray protection over them. Lord, we also pray that you would give wisdom and insight. Lord, we know that you raise up leadership and install in positions. And so, Lord, we just pray for safety, protection, wisdom for him, for his family, for also for our Congress and for our Supreme Court. There are many things that are moving right now. And, Lord, in the midst of all of that, we know that you can work. We've seen it before, and we trust and believe that it will happen again. So, God, we hand over our government to you and ask that you would do in it what you would do. God, we pray that you would help us to be respectful and honorable towards our leadership as you have called us to be. We thank you for it. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, it's good to have you here with us today. It is 4th of July weekend, and I know there are some who are gone. I know it's 4th of July weekend because last night at about 1 a.m., the fireworks were going off and my dogs were barking and I was trying to sleep. So if I fall asleep on stage, you can call my neighbors to thank for that. I believe that would be the Gordines. Um, if, if you guys were lighting off fireworks, I have a bone to pick with you. Um, <laughs> we do have uh, some guests here with us today, Dan and Marta Hirsch. This is the Nemedi's daughter and son-in-law missionaries. Uh, in Hungary. And so if you would, uh, uh, if you guys don't mind, just stand up and just give them a big wave so that everybody could recognize you all. And I think you guys were in for something, some reason. Oh, was it that the Nemedi's major anniversary is coming up? What anniversary was that? 50 years. If you would, give them a round of applause congratulate them when you see them. That's kind of a big deal. Um, and we're excited for them. And, and I know that, that Shondor is so happy that right now I'm shining that light right on him this morning. But make sure to congratulate them when you see them on the, after service out in the lobby or wherever you might see them over the next several weeks. Just congratulate them on, on such a major major milestone. If you would grab your Bibles today, and once you have those Bibles, if you would open them up to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We are coming up on the end of our series on kings. During this series, we're just reading some of the stories from the line of King David to King Jesus. And we're reading the stories of those various kings as, as we see in their lives things that maybe we should pull out and we should we should recognize about God and apply to our lives. And so that's what we've been doing during this series. 
Um, I have asked you to bring your own Bibles with you to church on Sundays, and you guys have been so faithful to do that. Um, This isn't something we often do. It's not something we always do, certainly, for those of you who are guests with us. But every now and then, we do like a little bit deeper study slash series. And so as part of that, it's just really good to have those Bibles in front of us, be able to read the scriptures for ourselves, read the context. It's not disconnected up on a screen. Instead, it's in your Bible. And so there's something I think that is super valuable about that. I'm ringing a little bit. Um, and, and so it's super helpful for us to be able to do that. And so I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for humoring me in that. We are coming up on the end of this study, uh, we, our series. We've only got two weeks left, um, which means that we're also coming up on the end of the stories of the kings of Judah, coming up on the end of Judah. And so as part of that, uh, things begin to speed up. Right about this time where we are in Second Chronicles chapter 28, the writing prophets begin to write. Isaiah and Hosea and Amos and Micah begin to write and they begin to say that there is something you better pay attention to. There is something that is just around the corner and if you don't know about it, it will take you by surprise. These prophets begin to speak about the fact that these nations will soon be coming to an end. And so we pick up in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, right where, well, just about where we left off last week with with Uzziah, um, it's a time of prosperity in Judah, really unmatched since David and Solomon. This is not the golden time of Israel, that would have been David and Solomon, but this is like the silver time of Israel. This is a, a, a time of incredible prosperity, expansion, agricultural, technological advancement. I mean, it's a great time in Judah. And right about that time, in Second Chronicles chapter 28, a young man, 20 years old, ascends to the throne, and his name is Ahaz. And so this morning we're going to begin in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, but this is not where we're going to end up. This is just kind of setting the stage. So this is just kind of laying some groundwork before we get to the passage of scripture that we will be in today. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, I want to share a little bit about what we can find out about Ahaz. Here's what it says. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which is about as bad of an indictment as you can get. He didn't act like David. He acted like the kings of Israel, the the usurper kings in the north. He acted like those kings instead of like David. And then it walks us through what that looked like. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed, and he made offerings on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. Okay, so he's not the first king to worship Baal. There's lots of kings who did that. He's not the first king to sacrifice offerings on high places or on hills or under every green tree. He's not the only king to do that. But he is the very first king to sacrifice his sons in a burnt offering. And this is something that even Ahab and Jezebel in Israel, who were the worst, most evil kings, it does not say that they did this same thing. 
But here is Ahaz. He comes along, and it's this time of incredible prosperity, and he starts out, or it says right at the very beginning, it says that he, he just begins to walk in the ways of Israel. He made metal images for Baal, so he's worshiping Baal. These offerings of his burnt offerings of his children probably, though, isn't to Baal. Most likely, this is to a different god, to Molech of the Ammonites. We don't know for sure. But more likely that than Baal. There's some who sacrificed burnt offerings, uh, children to Baal. But really, most likely, this is the Ammonite god. So he's worshiping Baal. And he's worshiping the Ammonite's god. And I would imagine he didn't start by burning his kids in offering. I would imagine that's not the initiation rite. It's not the initiation rite. But I would imagine that's not where it began. Because that's never where idolatry begins. Idolatry begins with there's an idol that we, we serve it, we wash it, we clean it, we feed it, in order that when we need something from that idol, that it will do what we want it to do. Okay? That's what idolatry is. That's what worshiping these other gods was all about. You do things for the God in order to force the God to help you when you need something. And so to go to the extreme of burning your children, that means that this was an extreme situation. And we have no idea. It doesn't tell us what the details are, but, but we do have other occasions in Scripture where it does tell us. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 27, it tells us about, about the, God of Moab, or the king of Moab who is trapped. He had lost a battle, and so he retreats into a city, and he's trapped in the city, and they've encircled him, and he's at his wit's end, and he's got no other options, and you know what he does? He takes his son, who was first in line to the throne, and he burns him before this God and hangs him on the wall as an offering to God in order that that God might be able to save them. So I guarantee you that he didn't just lead with burning his sons as an offering in the valley of Hinnom. We don't know what the situation was, but this is a dark kind of path that leads to this point. So he's worshiping Baal. He's like a religious schizophrenic. He's also worshiping the Ammonites' god. And it continues on, and it says that he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. It kind of gives this impression like he's going after everything. Like he's hitting them all. He's making sure that he's getting all of the bases covered, and he's trying every single one of these different faiths. It kind of gives that impression that that's what Ahaz is like. And you wonder what could have made him go to this extreme. I want to show you this map again from where we left off last week. They're going to uh, reflect this screen. And so this was where we left off last week. This is the map of, of Judah after the time of Uzziah. So Judah was smaller, and then during Uzziah's reign, there's this military expansion. They expand west into Philistia. They expand south all the way to the border of Egypt into Edom, and even east towards Ammon. Their, their, their power is extended that way as well. So this is as Ahaz ascends to the throne in 735 BC. This is what the nation looks like. Again, prosperous time. But things start going downhill quickly. In 734 BC, less than a year after he gains the throne, everything changes. Here's why. As we zoom out, I drew something for us this week, and that is Assyria. 
See, right around this time, Assyria, under a king named Tiglath-Pileser, starts to expand. And his control begins to really just bump against the borders and push outward. And so I drew it gray because it's kind of like this threatening cloud on the horizon, which is what the prophets call them, by the way. But Assyria starts expanding, and as Assyria starts expanding, it changes the entire complexion here, where Judah was in control of this area and, and really a prosperous time. Syria and Israel decide, we've got a problem. We're first in line when the Assyrians come through, which means we need to band together and push back against the Assyrians. So what we need to do is we need to gather all of the nations in our area, and we need to become a conglomeration that fights against Assyria. Otherwise, we've got no chance. Judah says no. So that means Syria and Israel decide to attack. They push south into Judah. Immediately, they find success. They carry off captives. Uh, if you read in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it says that they, not only did they take all these captives, verse 7 says, and Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, Ephraim is referring to Israel here, killed Maaseah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. So like they're killing, they kill the king's son, they take all these captives, they kill leaders in the military and, and leaders at home, and they are just winning this battle, okay? So things are ugly. And then right around that same time, if you keep reading the story, right in about verse 5 down to verse 15, or actually verse 15 through 17, it actually says that around that same time, Philistia rebels and begin to push into Judah. And around that same time, Eloth, which was a major point of, of, of access for them into the Gulf of uh, the, the Red Sea, that is removed and Edom begins to push back. So Judah is being attacked from the north, they're being attacked from the west, and they're being attacked from the southeast all at the same time. And the nation which had expanded during his grandfather and his father's reigns now all of a sudden begins to shrink. Honey, I shrunk the kingdom. Things are turning ugly. And, and, and these, not only are these nations rebelling against him, now they're pushing into Judah. Judah is being squeezed on all sides. And we're not sure if the reason why Philistia and Edom rebel against Judah is because of the fact that they were in league with Israel and in league with Syria. But what we do know, I mean, maybe it's that or maybe it's that they smell the blood in the water. But all at the same time, there are these pressures pushing against Judah and they are attacking all around the same time. So what Judah does, under Ahaz, he calls Assyria. He says, Assyria, I need your help. And that's, you find in verse 16, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. And then it says, for the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah. And it goes down and it talks about the Philistines rebelling. Verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah... Because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. He called Assyria, verse 20, so Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes 
and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. So his grand plan to go get Assyria to help doesn't work out. So then, verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So here he is, 734 B.C., somewhere between 734 and 732 B.C., and everything is falling apart, collapsing in from the north, collapsing in from the west, collapsing in from the south and the east. He sends off to Assyria for help. He ends up just paying them, and it ends up being an affliction instead of a help. So what does he do? Well, the gods of Syria seem to be helping the Syrians. I mean, they're winning against us, right? So that means they must have some power. So then he goes and gets their gods and worships them, thinking somehow, pragmatically, if it's successful, it must be true. So he worships these gods, and it ends up being their rune instead of their help. And you'd think it couldn't get any worse, but it does. We know because Isaiah in chapter 7 of Isaiah talks about it. So if you would, this is actually our passage for today is Isaiah chapter 7. If you would flip over to Isaiah chapter 7, it's like five, six books to the right. Um, if you get to the rest of the prophets, you went too far. If you're still in Proverbs or Psalms, you haven't gone far enough. But go over to Isaiah chapter 7. So here's the deal. After they've afflicted and come and carried off, and you can read all of that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. The two nations in the north, Syria and Israel, decide to come back. And this time, they're not just coming back to afflict Judah. Now they're coming back. I'm still ringing a bit. Uh, they're coming back to, to do a bit more. And you find that in, second, er, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Ju Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So this is saying that, the, that Rezin, who's the king of Syria, Pekah, the, the king of Israel, they come together, they join together, they come back to Jerusalem. The last time they weren't able to attack it, but now they're coming back. Verse 2. And when the house of David was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim just means Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We live out in the country and we are surrounded by trees. I love it. I love being in a kind of a forested area. And one of my favorite things is when just even several weeks ago it was blowing really, really heavy and we were sitting out on the back deck eating uh, dinner and as we were watching these trees which are so stately and strong and you look at them and they're never going to move and you think, man, that's a strong tree. And these trees in this wind just start flowing back and forth and, and they're whipped one way and then they're whipped another and then they're, and you're like, how, how? powerful must that wind be to make these incredibly strong stately trees move the way they are 
And I was driving in just this last weekend, driving by Greenlawn uh, Funeral Home. We were, we were up at the, on, on, the north, on the cemetery. We were coming south. And as I was coming, no rain, no wind. And all of a sudden, I'm coming in. And, and boy, there's trees down everywhere, these massive trees, which have survived for decades. The wind has knocked over, split in half. And I'm like, how powerful must that wind be? to blow those trees around like that. And so I actually love it. I love to sit out and watch the trees just blow and watch the glory and majesty of our God. Well, here what this says is that they hear that these two nations are coming back with a new plan, and his heart and the heart of the people shake as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshub, which is his son who is named Shear Joshub, which means a remnant shall return, which is super encouraging when you're in the midst of uh, a diaspora, if you're, if you're in the midst of being held captive. If you haven't yet been taken captive, not quite as encouraging. Because for a remnant to return, that means everybody else needs to be pulled out. Right, so anyways... So his son named Shear Joshub goes along with him at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So here's this water source that we know is outside of Jerusalem, but it would have been a, a major strategic location if Jerusalem were about to be under siege. And so here is where Ahaz is. Apparently he's inspecting it, getting it prepared. I mean, this is a strategic military location. I mean, this is important location for them. And he's there, and that's where Isaiah is told to go and find him. And he's told. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria... With Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So here's their plan. Now we know what their plan is. As they come back, they're going to split Jerusalem, or Judah in between them, and they're going to set their own king on the throne. We don't know who this son of Tabeel is. The name sounds kind of Syrian, so probably some guy from Syria who's going to come and be put as a puppet king on the throne. And then once they're all kind of together, then they can resist Assyria. It's a great plan. Fantastic plan. And so here come Syria and, and Israel. They're coming back. They're about to siege and attack Jerusalem again. And this time they're afraid because they know here that we can't defend us. Last time they killed my son. They killed the, the officers. They killed all of these different people. They carried people off. This is a big deal. And they're afraid. And yet God says to them, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. He says, in reality, you look at them, and what they are is, you see the smoke, but you think that means there's fire. In reality, what it means is that they're like the leftovers after the fire is over. They're exhausted. There's nothing left of them. 
You see the smoke and you think there's a fire, but in reality, you know what it means? It means the fire's gone. So don't worry about them. They're nothing but exhausted potential. He continues on. Thus says the Lord God. So, so far it doesn't say Isaiah says anything. This is God speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah, through this prophecy. Of course, it's Isaiah speaking, but it's, through, it's all thus says the Lord. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Essentially, what he's saying is this. There's nothing left of these nations but the leaders. You look at these nations, and they seem like they're great and powerful coming towards you. You see the smoke on the horizon. But in reality, all they are, all that's left of them, they're the, they're the burned-out firebrands. It's just the leaders. That's all you see. And guess what? Within 65 years, Israel, this nation just to your north, will no longer even be able to be called a people, which is exactly what happens. Two years later, 732 B.C., Assyria comes through, wipes the floor with Syria, destroys, kills the king. Eleven years later, comes back, carries off vast majority of the people from Israel, comes back again. By 669 B.C., which is exactly 65 years later, it is no longer a people. They've resettled other people there. It's no longer the people of Israel. The nation of Israel has come to an end 65 years after this prophecy is read. He says, don't worry about them. They will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is nothing, is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is nothing but the son of Ramalia. It doesn't even say his name. And then he says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, I know you look around you, and it seems like you're under siege from all sides, the southeast, the west, the north. I know you look at these nations which are coming against you and you think you've got no chance. He says, you don't, unless you stand firm in your faith. Now remember who he's speaking to here. He is speaking to a king who worships Baal. He's speaking to a king who worships Molech. He's speaking to a king who worships the Syrian gods. And we know in Isaiah chapter 8, it says, gives the impression like he also consults with those who are dead. Like he gets necromancers and stuff because he is just, I mean, he also called out to the Assyrians to try to get them in. This is not the guy who is worshiping Jehovah every day. And yet he says to this one, if you stand firm in your faith, he pursues him to this point and says, if you stand firm in your faith, I've got it. But if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Whoa, really? Any sign, God? I could ask for anything. 
I could ask for the sun to go backwards. I can ask, I can ask for anything as high as the heavens or as low as the depths of the earth. And you'll give that sign to show that you are trustworthy, God. Here's Ahaz's response. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Which sounds super spiritual. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Maaseah. So here he is. Sounds super pious. But boy, coming from somebody else, it might have been true. Here, coming from Ahaz, he just doesn't even want to give God a chance. So he says, I will not put the Lord the God, or put the Lord to the test. Verse 13, and he, and your version may say, and Isaiah said, because this is very clearly referring to Isaiah, which is really cool, because there's a significant transition that's happening here. Up to this point, it doesn't say Isaiah said anything. It says God said everything, speaking to Ahaz, of course, through Isaiah. But all of a sudden, here now, there's a significant shift, and it's Isaiah speaking. Now, you know that everything that happens after this point must have not been given to Isaiah ahead of time. Here's why. Because if it had been given to Isaiah ahead of time, what if he would have asked for a blue bird to fly by at that exact moment? What if he would have asked for the ground to shift? What if he would have asked for the water to flow backwards uphill? That means if he gives an opportunity for a sign, then everything that comes after is on the spot. So he gives him an opportunity for a sign. He says no. Isaiah then says, and you can sense the anger oozing in these words. Here's what he says. He says, verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And, and there's a significant shift that's also happening here that we don't catch in the English. It, it would have been better had they written y'all. If he would have said this, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for y'all to weary men that y'all weary my God also? Here's why. The you's turn from singular to plural. Which means that Isaiah's not just speaking to Ahaz here. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the entire house of David through Ahaz. The line of David to Jesus. And he said, is it too little for you to weary man? Now you weary my God also. You don't want a sign? Well, here it comes anyways. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The most beautiful prophecy about the birth of Christ is given in a word of anger. Unprepared ahead of time, Isaiah in this moment speaking not only to Ahaz, but the entire line of David through him says, it is too much for you to weary man. You're going to weary my God. God will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and his name will be God is with 
us. And I read this story, and I'm sitting here, and I'm like looking at it, and I'm like, why in the world would a prophecy like this come to a man, a king like Ahaz? Why would the most beautiful prophecy about Christ being born of a virgin come to a king who burned his own sons? The prophecy of a son to a king who burns his sons. Prophecy of God with us to a king who doesn't want God with us. He continues on and he reads and he says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. He shall eat curds and honey. And that's because they are the good. If you've ever been to Wisconsin and had good Wisconsin cheese curds, hallelujah. When you bite into them, they squeak. I'm sorry, I'm done. No. <laughs> Eat curds and honey. Honey. Oh, I love honey. And not that honey that you guys buy at Walmart, the honey I get from the beehives. <laughs> but you know what it's saying here? This isn't talking about foods that are like the exotic or the foods that are the 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 like the, the good stuff. This is talking about the kind of foods that are available in a land where the ground is not tilled. This is the type of foods that are available in a land where there are nations oppressing. See, from this point forward, from the moment that Ahaz refuses the sign, Judah becomes a vassal state to Assyria. And after Assyria, Babylon. And after Babylon, Persia. And after Persia, Greece, and after Greece, Rome. This says that when the Emmanuel comes, he will come to a land of oppression. And this is the prophecy given to Ahaz about God with us. The pragmatic king. The king who finds things that seem to work and then searches after those instead of putting his faith in God. The prophecy comes to this pragmatic king. And again I ask, why him? Why would this prophecy come to a man like Ahaz? The reason why is all the way back in verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6 of Isaiah. The problem is, or the reason why, is that Rezin and Pekah, the kings of Syria and Israel, made a mistake. Here's where their mistake was. Verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. They'd have been fine there. God said he was going to use them in order to humble Judah. That's fine. And let us conquer it for ourselves. Probably even would have been fine there. And set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Okay, see, now they've stepped over the line. Because if this happens, if their plan comes to fruition, then God's plan does not. Right? 
they've stepped into very dangerous territory with this plan right here. Because now they have set themselves in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan for mankind. If they succeed, then God does not. If they replace the line of David in Judah, in Jerusalem, then that line is broken to Jesus. And that will not happen. If Pekah and Rezin go against God, who do you think is going to win? See, they stepped over the line. And so to Ahaz, God says, there is no need to fear. There is no need for your heart to shake back and forth like the trees in the wind. Because I look at these nations and you see the smoke and I see the fact that the fire is out. See, you see these nations that seem so fierce and angry and yes, they're angry. I see the fact that they have come against my redemptive plan and there is no chance whatsoever that they will succeed. See, you see the short, I see the long. Ahaz, this king who is so sure and so quick to go after all of these different things, even coming to the point as he's sitting there pushing buttons in Judah, searching after all of these different opportunities and chances to save the nation and to save his own line, doesn't recognize that it's not even necessary. And one of those buttons that he pushes somewhere along the line is to burn his own sons. And yet God comes to him and says, to you, I'm giving a son. And he will be, God is with us. A virgin will conceive. And she'll give birth to a son. And then it won't just be, God is with us. It'll be, God is with us. He doesn't see any of that. He just sees the short. He sees the moment. And as a result, he's swinging wildly back and forth. I am convinced that faith is not just trust in God in the absence of other options. I believe it is faith in God when it seems there are better options. And yet Ahaz is swinging wildly back and forth. Why? Because he doesn't see the whole picture. And so God says to him, you don't see the whole picture. I do. So put your faith in me. You've been sitting on the throne for 16 years. I've been sitting on the throne for eternity. Will you trust me? And I read this story and I see this incredible prophecy given to a king like Ahaz. And it says to me that God pursues those who don't deserve to be pursued. It says to me that when I was just like Ahaz is, God followed me. He chased me. And he showed me his son. And it also says to me that in the moments when I look around and boy, I don't see any possible way why everything might be able to come together. Or I look around and I see sickness or I see, this week was a rough week, man. And I see all these things happening and I'm just broken for people. And I'm like, God, how are you going to bring this back together? How are you going to restore this family? How are you going to heal this person? 
How are you going to make this financial situation work? I don't see it. God says to me, have faith in me or you won't be able to stand at all. Stand firm in your faith or you won't stand at all. Because I do not see the restoration. I do not see the healing. I do not see how God is going to work this together for good. But he asks me to trust that he will. And he does the exact same thing for you. Does not matter your situation. You don't see it all. Our life is just a breath. And God is eternal. He sees the end from the beginning. And so he can speak to a king at the waterworks and tell him, hey, you're okay. Because I'm planning on using your line. It's okay. Because of Emmanuel. So this morning, I don't know if you, your situation, and I really just strongly felt this morning like this was going to be the case. That there are some people in here, like even when we put that map up on the screen and you saw Judah pushed in from the top, uh, from the north and from the west and the south and the east, you're like, huh, that's me. That there are people in here who, man, there's just so much stuff pushing in on us. And in the midst of that, you may not see how it gets turned around. You may not see what God is going to do with it. Let me just say, ask God for a sign. And he will show you Emmanuel. And that same promise is as real to you as it was to Ahaz. God has a plan. And he works all things together for good. And that's a promise. Father... I thank you that you call us from pragmatism. You call us from this idea of looking around us and seeing what might succeed. Because Ahaz looked to Syria and said, oh, these gods seem to be successful. But two years later, those gods failed Syria when the nation of Assyria came in and wiped the floor with them. God, we look around us and we see people who are successful and we say, man, there is so much evil there. Why are they successful and I'm not? And to that situation, I just speak Emmanuel. And God, to the person in here right now who's dealing with sickness, and boy, it just keeps hanging on. It just doesn't go away. And they're crying out, God, what in the world? I just speak Emmanuel. To the person in here whose family seems to be breaking apart. And they don't see how it's possible for it to be restored. It's not, except by God. So I speak Emmanuel in that situation. Father, to the person in here who is just struggling in their faith. Asking the question, oh God, are you real? Having tried every single other option under the sun. Swinging wildly from one direction to another. They are a tree tossed in the wind. God, to that person I speak, Emmanuel. 
Thank you for being with us, O oh God. And this morning, as we come into this place, we worship you, our Emmanuel. We worship you, the God who came, the Son who came to those who are so unworthy. And God, I just pray that we would catch that, hold that, cling to that. And in the midst of whatever situation, that we would stand firm, not on our own, but in our faith. That we would look to you and not our surroundings. I thank you for it. In your name, Jesus. Amen. And you've come to bring peace, to be loved, to be nearer to us. And you've come to bring life, to be light, to shine brighter in us. Oh, amen. You.
Hallelujah. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you that you came to us, a lost people, and you brought salvation. God, we thank you that when we swing wildly back and forth, going to the ends of the earth to find something to replace you, there will never be a God whom we can find who will be like you. There will never be a God who instead of asking for our sons, will give his son. There will never be a God who says, I am coming and I will be with you. There will never be a God who gives promises and keeps them like you. There will never be a God who 700 years before it happened told that it would happen. There will never be a God like you. And so, Father, right now, every person in this room, we commit our hearts to you and we say we will not look to our situation over your promises. We will put our faith fully, completely in you. We will stand firm in our faith knowing that without it, we will not stand at all. And Father, if there is anybody in this room right now who does not know you, who has not accepted this incredible offer, right now by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to them and say, my offer is to you. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I came to King Ahaz. I've come to you. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can do that will make you unable to receive my grace. Father, I pray that you would speak that to every heart in here. And if there is anyone in here this morning who does not know that, who has not accepted that incredible offer of salvation, this morning may they receive it. I ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'm going to dismiss you. And even as you do, if you're in here and you would say, that's right where I'm at. I've not accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you this morning. So even as I dismiss in just a moment, as others are stepping out and walking out, I'm going to invite you to step out and walk down to the front. And they would love to pray with you and share those next steps with you. Uh, this morning. As you go, I'm going to encourage you to keep this just as a place of worship and prayer for a moment. If you feel like God is done with you, or if you, that's not what I meant. If God has just released you this morning, I would encourage you to step out and head out into the lobby, and then maybe just a fellowship out there and encourage one another out in the lobby. If you're a guest here with us today, as you walk out, hang a left and head down to that guest reception where we have some fresh, warm cookies waiting for you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. God bless you as you go. If you're in here and you would like prayer, instead of stepping out, if you would, just step down towards the front, and that prayer team would love to pray with you this morning. God bless you. You are here. You are holy. We are standing in your glory you are here you
Say. 